Hey, if you have your Bible, open up to Haggai chapter two. Haggai chapter two. It's already been such a great morning. I don't want to drag anything out except getting into the scriptures this morning. And uh, if you're new to, new to church, new to gospel, maybe it's your first time or second time, we just want to say hi, welcome. Um, we believe church is less about what we do for God and more about recognizing and realizing what he's done for us. Too many people are afraid of church because they think it's about rules. But for here in our church, we follow Jesus and we are more in awe of him than we are of the things that we're so stuck and trying to get out of and do. We, we, t- we say it like this, if you're struggling with sin, focus on Jesus and the rest will take care of itself. But when we focus on our do's and don'ts and the right thing to do and the right time to stand and the right time to kneel and the things we got to accomplish, we mess up pretty quick. And so for us, the gospel is good news and uh, today is gonna be no different. Haggai chapter two, if you're ready, we're gonna start in verse six. Verse six today. Oh man, this word in the first service really broke open and I'm praying it does in this service. Um, We're about 700 years or so before the time of Jesus. The people of Israel, their first temple has been torn down. These guys, the Babylonians come in and they enslaved them for 70 years. They tore down their church basically. And then eventually God restores Israel, sends them back to rebuild. And they start rebuilding, but as they're rebuilding, they get a little lazy. About 18 years go by with no work. No one's doing the work. The ministry's not built yet. The church isn't finished being built. And so Haggai jumps in and speaks to that kind of tension. Let's pick it up in verse six. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more, someone say once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations that the treasures of all nations will come in and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, the buffalo bills are mine, says the Lord of hosts. Some of you are like, if that's the case, what happened? Verse eight, the silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. Here it is, the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, some of y'all came just for this part of the verse. This is the thing you've been looking for. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. I'm gonna title this message this morning on our anniversary weekend, you ain't seen nothing yet. You ain't seen nothing yet. That's the title of my talk this morning. You ain't seen nothing yet. Let's pray. Father, help us move in this space. Lord, let this not just be about celebrating internally what you've done. May we get inspired to keep growing and going outwardly too. We love you in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen, amen. Turn to somebody next to you and say, you ain't seen nothing yet. You ain't seen nothing. Turn to somebody else and say, baby. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm coming up uh, just this year. My wife and I celebrated eight years of being married. And uh, if you're married, you know every year is a celebration. I, I love my wife. She's everything to me. We've come a long way in our relationship. When we uh, were first getting ready to get married, we did what most Christian couples do. We went through something called premarital counseling. And premarital counseling is where you have a pastor or uh, you know somebody speaking into you and basically telling you how to prepare for marriage. 
And so we talked about the covenant that we were coming into. They were talking about all the blessings that come from marriage. You know, the book of Proverbs says, when he who finds a wife finds a good thing. And they were like, you know, you're getting a good thing with this woman. And just a lot of scripture, a lot of great things. But they never told me that my wife was going to be making dinner for me when I came home from a good day of work. Now, before you look at me weird, best believe the first time she made dinner for me, the very next words out of her mouth were, so you got tomorrow night, right? But I just remember coming home from a long Wednesday at work. I was at the church all day, had done some counseling in the afternoon, and then we had Wednesday night church. And usually church gets out about 8 o'clock, but we would be praying and ministering for another hour. So I got home, and Randy had already gone home early to make sure that dinner was ready. And I I came in, and to to my just awe was an entire Mexican spread. Now, I don't know if this sounds like a foreign language to you, but I'm talking about like Mexican rice. I'm talking about like enchilada casserole. I'm talking about chili rellenos. Come on, somebody. I'm talking about frijoles. I'm talking about all those things that just, mm. Glad I married a Mexican. Thank you, Jesus. We sit down and we ate, and what blew me away was not how good the food was. It was not the fact that my wife and I had this agreement now that we were going to be taking care of us, you know, each other the rest of our lives. What blew me away is that there was something that had been prepared for me before I ever got there. It, It was something that had been thought about, something that had been thought through. There was supplies that were bought for it. She put the time in to cook it. And all I had to do was walk in and enjoy what had been prepared for me. When someone prepares something for you in advance, doesn't it almost kind of show you like your value? Like, wow, they thought of me. Wow, they put the time in before I got here. How much more could it mean to know that God prepares something for us? That yeah, sure, men and women, we can do so much, but the Bible tells us that God has something prepared for us. That I would go as far to say this, that he's preparing you for what he has already prepared for you. He's getting you ready so that when you get in front of the thing that he's calling you to, you're stepping into it with the right posture and the right attitude and the right mindset because it's already been prepared. The Bible says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9. It says, no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. So the apostle Paul is writing in this text and he's saying, you think you've seen one thing. But no eye has seen what God has prepared for those that love him. No eye can fathom. Even if you saw what God was drawing you to, you wouldn't go because it's so out of reach. There's times in the season that we were getting ready to plant the church. I thought if I was thinking logical about it, I might have never trusted God. If I was weighing out all my options, if I was having a plan B on the back burner just in case, would it really be faith? We're stepping into this season as a church where we believe we haven't seen anything yet. We haven't seen the best days in our family. We haven't seen the best days in our local businesses. We haven't seen the best days in our state university. We haven't seen the best days in our churches. We haven't seen the best days in our schools and in our marriages and our recovery centers. You ain't seen nothing yet. If you could be fully satisfied with God, he would not be God. God has this way of filling us while making us still want more. We're filled, but we're still hungry. And although the search for meaning ends when you find Jesus, the pursuit of his presence is just getting started. 
There is something to be said that no eye has seen nor ear has heard the thing that God has for you. And when Haggai jumps in the scene, he had that same principle in his heart. As I mentioned earlier, Babylon came in to Israel and enslaved them. For 70 years, they actually exiled them out of their native land. The Bible says the Babylonians tore down their temple, ridiculed their worship, desecrated all their sacred instruments, and they actually took over. And for 70 years, the people felt like God wasn't there. Have you ever been there before where you're like in a moment and it just doesn't feel like God's there? Anybody like a moment where you're asking him, but it doesn't feel like he's talking back. A moment where you're doing all the stuff, you're tithing, you're praying, you're worshiping, you're doing all the stuff that you know he's calling you to do, but it still feels like something's missing. It's in that place of ultimate surrender that even when we don't make sense of it, he still calls us closer to get close to him. I said it last week, but when we question God, he actually invites us closer. When we question things, the church has been on the defense a lot of times where someone's questioning something. We say, no, 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 stay away until you figure that out. Like, are you questioning the biblical theology of who Jesus is? Or this isn't the place for you. Are you struggling with like, your sexual identity and who you are? This isn't the place for you. And we push people away. But I just believe when there's questions, we ought to draw them closer. That we ought to create a space where it doesn't matter if you don't get it yet or not. It doesn't matter if you fully agree with us. We have a house where you can draw when you have questions, not run away. Too often we come before God thinking he's upset. And I can imagine 70 years of exile, these Israelites are upset. Eventually the kingdom of Persia takes over Babylon and they're cool with Israel. So they say, why don't you go back and build? And so the people go back to build. Insert Nehemiah's story. Insert Ezra's story. Insert Esther here in First and Second Chronicles. All that is picking up as Haggai steps on the scene. A couple things about Haggai. We call him a minor prophet. Not because he's insignificant, but when you look at Old Testament prophets, you see a little bit more impact in some of the ministries. Jeremiah, for instance, he's got like 55 chapters in his prophecy. Isaiah has 66 chapters in his prophecy. Haggai has two. And sometimes that's all you need to stir things up. Sometimes you don't need to be long with what you have to say. You just need to be strong with what you have to say. Sometimes you don't need to beat around the bush. Sometimes you need to just be direct and say, here's what's going on. And so Haggai saw his people and they were building the temple, but then for 18 years, they stopped. They just got used to it being in construction. Every time they walked by it, they saw the scaffolding. Oh yeah, we'll get to it one day. Oh yeah, I know it's, I know it's supposed to be for God, but it's, it's not that important. And they were getting more focused on their own thing than God's thing. And here's what Haggai says to them in verse three of Haggai chapter one. It says, then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. And he said, is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Do you see how strong he comes in? He's like, oh, so y'all wanna build your own house and put remodels on your own house while the house of God is still in construction. That, that, that's convicting to me, my friends, because how distracted can I get when I try to build my thing, but I forget about his? Okay, I've learned it the hard way. If you build his thing, he will take care of your thing. If you put him first, he will take care of the rest. What's the Bible say? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will get added. And so Haggai right away says, poke, poke, poke. What are we doing? I'm thankful for the people that poke me. I'm thankful for the people that come up and say, hey, great sermon. But you know, that was incorrect what you said. Nehemiah was actually Jeremiah. I'm thankful for those people. 
because we can get easily complacent with the things of God that are meant to keep us on fire. <laughs> Did you know that the, the fire's natural tendency is to go out? That if you just leave a fire lit, eventually it'll go out. It's the same in the Christian church. We light a fire in our souls and then we just think it's going to stay lit. Instead of fanning the flame ourselves, instead of inputting more things to keep it going, that's what the church is for. Every seven days, we come back together and we fan the flames again. We get some ignition again. We start going and saying, we can be this. So Haggai jumps in and he just pokes. He continues, verse five. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Someone say, consider. consider. Watch this. You, you have sown much, but you've harvested little. And you eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns his wages does so to put them into a bag full of holes. Here's what Haggai says. You're doing a lot of stuff, but you're not content. Even as a Christian, the stuff we do sometimes, we just do it to do it. And it's not leading to peace or joy. We have more anxious Christians than ever before. We have more addicted Christians than ever before. And it's not like God is saying, keep away if that's you. But he is saying, I, leave, I love you too much to leave you that way. Uh-huh. You know, people, people was talking about our church recently and someone came to me and said, you know, people have been talking about your church. And I'm like, oh yeah, what are they saying? They were saying, well, it's just like a house of sinners. And I was like, I know, isn't that awesome? <laughs> and they were like, yeah, but I mean, like, what are your thoughts on that? I'm like, I feel pretty good. Because if we're not actually helping people get better, is it church? He says, you, have, you eat, but you never have enough. And his phrase in verse five is, consider your ways. I want to break down this Hebrew word consider, because in Hebrew, this means uh, uh, something that we miss in the English transliteration, okay? I want you to read uh, this phrase. It's sum levav is the phrase, sum levav. And consider in Hebrew means to put in order in your inner man. So when Haggai says consider, he's not saying like put in order your house, like go and clean your room up. He's saying put the same emphasis you would on your house in your soul. He's saying consider what you've been doing. Consider your emotions. Consider the results of your life. Because too often we get upset with the results of our life, but we never question the practices of our life. So we're not happy with results, but we don't recognize what we do eventually makes us into who we are. Haggai's word for this church is that we ought to put in order in our inner man what's been going on. For the last 21 days, we've been fasting and praying. And yesterday we had our prayer time here on Saturdays. And it was just a season to remember, like 21 days we've been fasting and praying for God to put in order in our inner man for him to realign us and give us pure motives and make sure that we're cleansing ourselves from old seasons. You know, there's times where your last season can get stuck on you. And unless you got somebody to kind of pick it out of you, you're not going to get to your new season. Are you following me? That's, a, that's what the job of the shepherd was in the days of old. The shepherd would stand at the gate of the, of the sheepfold and he would run his hands through his sheep. And he was looking to see if anything got stuck in their wool while they were out. And he would carry a staff that had the little, you know, little hook there to like, you know, beat against like anything that would try to hurt his sheep. But on the other end of his staff was like a pointer and it was sharp. And they would use that to pick things out of the sheep. <laughs> Never get mad when someone at church asks you, how you been? And you know, you're not doing good, but you're like, I'm fine. 
All they're trying to do is just do their part to help pick out anything that's not true. Okay, this, this week you heard a lot of things. This week you heard things on the news. You heard things from your family. You heard things from your coworkers. You heard things from your own kids. And if you don't have people that help pick out what's truth and what's lies, you'll get stuck in the same place. Oh, I've got someone in my life calls me every Sunday. Watch my message online. They call me every Sunday. Shout out, pastor. And they'll check on me. Yeah, I loved that. I heard that was great. How are you feeling? Because he wants to make sure that nothing up here is going to get stuck on me after I deliver the word. It's the same as Christians. We have to consider our ways. And so as a church, we're looking at 2023. And I've just been praying, what is it that God sees for this community? Yeah, growth. Yeah, numbers. You know, we might have to add a service one day. Like all that stuff is great. But on a deeper level, what is this place going to be about this year? So I want to give you three things that we see coming into this year. First of all, here's what we see. We see a house of God's glory. We don't see a church building. We don't see square footage. We don't see drop ceilings and carpets. We see a house of God's glory that when people come to this place, they just can't shake it. Just I feel it. You know, I tell people often, don't go to a church just because you like it. Because one day you might hear something you don't like and you'll leave. But if you go to a church because God's calling you there, you can't shake it. You just know you need to be there. You're just supposed to be there. That's, that's how it should be. There ought to be something that draws us to his glory. Verse seven of chapter two says this, Haggai again, speaking for the Lord. He says, I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. So the first thing that God wants to do before filling the house is shake the nations. Ah, don't get mad when your life is shaking because it could be a setup for glory. Don't get upset when things aren't going the way you planned. Sometimes the best thing you need is for something to not go your way. So you go to God. Sometimes the devil has been the best thing for some of you in the room because he's made you go to God and pray and get on your knees. Sometimes the attacks of the enemy, all we want to do is focus on that. But why not use that to draw you to the one that can give you the answer? There's an understanding as a Christian that we're in a fight and not everything is going to go our way. Haggai says it's going to shake and then the filling happens. So the shaking of your life is to set up the filling of God's glory. Can I go deeper? The Bible says in the gospels that when Jesus died, he breathed his last and he says, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And when he breathed his last, the Bible says that the earth began to shake. Remember the centurion at the cross? He gets saved right away. He's like, I was wrong. This is God. And the Bible tells us that after the earth shook, the graves of many saints opened up. And I just want y'all to imagine this. Jesus dies, the earth shakes, and then people raised to life and started walking out of the graves. So the shaking of the earth was just a setup for the resurrection of the saints. You missed it. The shaking that we see in our world is just a setup to get the saints again on fire for the things of God. The shaking we see in our political structure is just a setup to get us back to life again on the things that matter. Don't despise the shaking because it could be a setup. Turn to someone and say, it's a setup. It's a setup. So we see a house of God's glory. And that's why, as Randy shared earlier, every week now our church is open on Saturdays for prayer. At 9 a.m. to 10 a.m., we have this house filled with worship. There's communion off the side you can partake of. We have prayer requests on the altars we pray for because nothing on a Sunday is going to work unless the church prays. 
Every big move of God in this area and throughout the world was preceded by praying people. People that just say, oh God, if you would save my neighbor. Oh God, if you would draw my kids back to you. Oh God, if you would draw the checkout lady to our church. Oh God, if you would. It starts with us praying. Before God does anything, it starts with us having a desire and a hunger and an atmosphere of glory. Sometimes you don't need anything else but an encounter with God. Sometimes you don't need another drink. You need the presence of God. Sometimes you don't need another one night stand. You need the presence of God. Sometimes you don't need the thing you think you need. Sometimes you just need an encounter with God. And that can change everything else. And so we believe a house of God's glory. We believe this place, as soon as you get out of your car, you feel it. As soon as you meet one of our first dream teamers in the parking lot, you feel it. In worship today, I don't know about you, but I felt it today. I mean, we want to have a house that's filled with God's glory. Uh, Here's what David said in Psalm 27. He writes, one thing that I have asked of the Lord, one thing, one thing. I would love to get to a place where I can ask God for one thing. I would love to get to a place where I can ask my wife for one thing. Because right now it's like 30. He says, one thing I have asked that I will seek after. Not that I would have a platform, not that I would get a big crowd, not that, you know, everybody would affirm me or notice what I do. He says, one thing that I've asked that I'm going to seek, I want to dwell in God's house. And not just for a Sunday. He says, I want to dwell in it all the days of my life. And I want to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and inquire in his temple. A true encounter with God leads to you seeing God as beautiful. Not just powerful, strong, forgiving, all those great Christian words. There is a beauty and a tenderness to God. The Bible says he sticks closer than a brother. The Bible says that he's made for a time of adversity. The Bible says that he is our anchor when everything else is swaying. He's beautiful, friends. Let's not look at him as a manager that we're running late to work for. Let's not look at him as a judge who's got the gavel checking us out. There will be judgment one day. But if you see him constantly as a judge, you're always going to present your case. The framework for a connection with God is relationship. He actually wants to be with you. My daughter, she was in worship today and uh, just wrecked me. There was a time I was hanging out with her and her cousin, and and we were playing at uh, my sister-in-law's house, and, you know, Randy was there, and my father-in-law was there, and his wife was there. We were all just kind of hanging out, and uh, they were going to go outside. And so... My goddaughter runs ahead, and my daughter, I was playing with her in this little ball pit. She starts climbing out, and she, like, took three steps. And then she, like, turned around and looked at me. And my, you know, goddaughter went outside. She's already in the backyard, and Addie's just looking at me. And she came and, like, got back in the ball pit. And for a moment, I got a picture of the heart of God. You don't know what it does to his heart when instead of going out into the backyard of a normal Sunday morning, you walk into his house. You don't know what it's like when you choose his presence over the swings and slides of this world. You don't know what it's like. You think he's mad at you. He's so happy to see you. He's missed you. He's not going like, oh, you know, get it together. You got to know he's so glad you chose to be here. And that, my friends, is worthy of something we can notice. Keep going in verse five. The Bible says this, for he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. And he will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. In other words, the house of God is a covering and a shelter for people that are on the run. 
There's, I'm, you're never going to hear me say anything else. The house of God should be a refuge for people. You know, that's why we had the tragedy in Buffalo, the storm a couple months ago. We were already on the phone with people locally. We were already talking to the police department. Hey, if it gets cold down here, we'll open our church. Like if we need a warming center, we'll open our church because there's just something about recognizing the house of God should cover you when you're running in. Okay, I, I love when I see people from our recovery group on Tuesdays because every Tuesday we meet with addicts and people that are working on their life. And Tuesdays is a little different than Sundays. Okay, because on Tuesdays, it's the meat and potatoes. We're working things out. We're working out principles. You know, we're correcting each other. We're actually holding each other accountable. On Sundays, we have a rule. There's no correction in our recovery when it comes to Sunday mornings. It's a celebration. We're happy to see you. It's not time to come in and be like, I got work to do. That's Tuesday nights. Come out. Come on out. We'll, we'll put the work in. But our house primarily is a covering on a Sunday. It's a place that you can run into when you're scared. It's a place you can ask questions when you doubt. And I sure do love what God's been doing with it. So we're a house of God's glory. Number two, I got to move quick here. I, I believe, and I think all of us can see leaders that are after God's glory. So in this second year, we believe that there are leaders in this house that are after God's glory, that aren't just trying to be seen or known or get their own glory. These are leaders that all they do is exist to bring glory to God. There was a man in the New Testament known as Paul. He's kind of an important figure in the New Testament. He, he also carried a hunger and a passion for leaders. And many times people would, you know, complain about what they were going through to Paul and they would come to him and say, you know, it's not easy though. And, and Paul would constantly remind them of his own struggles to try to encourage them. And I want to read to you what he writes in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 24. He says, five times I have received at the hands of Jews 40 lashes. Less one. So Paul was being beat by Jewish people for trying to reach other people for God. Okay, he was going after Gentiles. He was going after people that weren't in the lineage of, of Judaism. And Jewish people were getting upset and they were beating him for that. Okay, this is how radical this guy was. Five times I received 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I had thrown stone at, uh, stones thrown at me. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. I was on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and in hardship through many sleepless nights and in hunger and in thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. <laughs> you feeling better about your life yet? <laughs> and he doesn't stop there. What makes him a leader for the kingdom of God is what he says next. Verse 28 continues. And apart from all that, I have a daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. So although he was getting beat physically and he was struggling physically, he couldn't stop shaking the spirits and the spiritual life of his community. That's how you know a leader is a leader when they don't focus on themselves. They got plenty of things to complain about, plenty of things they could focus on. But when someone's in need, who am I to say, here's what I'm going through when I know what you're going through? So here at Gospel, another year two initiative for us is going to be to raise up men and women that can help pastor and lead as our church grows. And here at our church, a year two goal for us is to train and equip elders. And so today we prayed over Paul as our first local board member. Next year, I hope to pray over five or six people in our community that are going to be elders in our church. What does an elder do? They protect the spiritual life of our church. 
They help pastor the people. They, they do everything that Randy and I do, but they carry a hunger and a desire for spiritual growth here. We have to have those things in place. Let's continue on Psalm 27. I'm gonna give you one more verse from that passage. Verse six says this, and now my head shall be lifted up. So verse four, David prays, one thing I've asked is that I'll be in your house. Verse five, he says, I'm gonna be hidden when I come into the house of God. So I'm seeking you and I'm covered by you. And then he says in verse six, and now my head will be lifted up above my enemies and I will offer in his tent sacrifices of shouts of joy and I will sing and make melody to the Lord. After God got a hold of David, he couldn't do anything else but sing about it. He had been singing songs before, like many of us can sing a song like that. But once God gets a hold of your life, you don't want to sing anything else. You don't want to talk about anything else. You don't want to go anywhere else. Instead of running to that thing that you used to depend on, that place that used to give you meaning, instead of going that way, God tells us today, come to me and I will give you what you need. Here's a few more things about what leaders do as I get ready to close. First, leaders fall on their knees in prayer. My pastor told me this. He said, Billy, you have two choices. You will either fall on your knees in prayer or you will fall by, from your platform because of sin. But a leader is gonna fall either way. They're gonna fall by choice or they're gonna fall by sin. I'd like to be the former that says, I would rather choose to fall on my knees and honor God than have something taken later because too much pride worked its way in. Secondly, leaders bless with their hands. So their knees they get on, their hands they use to bless others. Okay, third, leaders echo truth with their mouth. My job as a pastor is not to preach opinions, it's to echo truth. Okay, our job as Christians is not to come up with something clever to say, it's to echo what's already true. What about for young people? You know, don't, don't we need something different to try to reach them? Consider it a translation Then I need to make sense of this in a younger generation, but it's still true. Yeah. So if anything, we are echoing what God has said. Fourth, we protect the vision of our eyes. If I'm a leader, I watch what gets in front of my eyes. You know, on a Sunday night, you're not going to catch me watching anything else but football. Maybe Sports Center, but no emotional movies we're watching on Sunday night because I'm depleted. We're not watching anything that might, you know, cause a scene of two people to come in front of our eye. We protect our vision. You know, we don't listen to certain things. We've walked out of movies before. It's not because we're holy and greater than thou. Y'all got to find your own convictions. But there is something to be said about protecting what you see. And in front of our faces comes so much in our world, news updates and opinions and all this stuff. If you're not protecting your vision, you can easily start to believe lies instead of continuing to see the truth. Fifthly, leaders, they purify their heart by the scripture. They recognize that the scripture gives them the place for purity, not just rule keeping or things to do. It's the story of God and how you and I are included in that. Sixthly, great leaders, you know what they do? They submit to being led themselves. So I'm not able to lead others until I myself am being led. That's why I have a pastor. That's why in two months, I'm going to see a man of God. I've got 30 questions ready for him. What's year two gonna be like that year wasn't like? What things can I look out for? How can I protect myself as our church begins to grow? Like you need people in your life that you submit to. You know how many things people have already told me no about this church. I'll be like, what if we do this? We talk it, go ask questions, no. You know, we tried to buy three or four other buildings. 
And I was like, this is the one. And we had overseers, we had counsel, we had people that said, mm, it's too soon. So we're submitting to being led ourselves. And then lastly, here's what leaders do. They burn with passion for other souls. They can't stop thinking about other people missing out on eternity. They, they, they see people at the gas station and wonder, do they know Jesus? Maybe every now and then they engage with them, but there's just, they can't stop thinking about it. You know, I, I, when I'm driving down these houses in Fredonia or I'm like, you know, driving around town, I'm, I'm seeing houses and cars, but it's souls. It's men and women that are looking for some sort of eternal security. And I, I don't see people, I see souls. I don't see empty chairs. I see the souls that are going to sit in them one day. I see the, the reservation for your son-in-law that you've been praying about. The reservation for your sister who's far from God. The There's a reservation in those chairs for people. We got to see souls, not empty seats. We got to see men and women that still need God. So we burn with passion. We keep the flame lit. We stay hungry for God. Everyone's unapologetic about everything else, unapologetic about their sexuality, unapologetic about sports teams, unapologetic about a political party. Why do we got to be quiet? I'm done being quiet about the most life-giving news in the planet. <laughs> I'm done trying to, oh, I don't want to make them feel uncomfortable. That's on God. Our job is to present truth. So we've been burning lately with souls. We've been thinking about not just this generation, but the next generation. And so year two initiative for us is elders and, you know, prayer every week. But we're also excited to announce our first youth night is coming up in February. Junior high and high school are going to be gathering here in February. Yep. And we're going to fill this place with worship. We're going to have pizza and, you know, video games and all that stuff. It's not a youth group without pizza. And then we're going to have our young people come in and have worship. Someone's going to preach. We're going to have altar time. Fill their lives with God. Unapologetically, an encounter with God. If you're interested in being a part of this team, come talk to me or my wife directly today. You know, if you want to chaperone that event, if you're looking to find out about that event, uh, we're going to have some meetings in the coming weeks. We'd love to get you involved. But we just believe that, you know, after, now that we're established year one, we got to now reach the next. And we got to get our junior hires to know the difference between truth and lies. We got to get our high schoolers passionate about reaching their friends for Jesus. We, we got to get some of our young people away from, you know, the stereotypical Christian branding. We need to get them the gospel. So we're excited about that. Haggai says it like this. He continues and he says, the latter glory of this house shall be greater. Verse nine, Haggai chapter two. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I give peace. I believe your kids' faith is gonna be stronger than your faith. I believe your grandkids' normal life is gonna be determined by the practices of your life. My daughter's up here lifting her hands, singing songs. That's because it's not the first time she's heard that song. That's because every morning she doesn't get Elmo until she gets some listener kids or some worship first. Are you following me? We gotta raise them up to know who God is. You following me? So we're going to have a house of glory. We're going to have leaders after God's glory. And lastly, number three, we're going to have outreach for God's glory. We were so proud of our outreach initiatives last year. We had 68 people serving throughout the year. I've got faith that we can double that this year. We had serve day, as many of you know, uh, in, in July. Then typically we have serve day. It's a global serve day. We had a huge turnout. But this year we're going to add a winter serve day as well. 
And so we have July 15th, we'll go out and serve just like we did. We do the gas giveaways, we'll do house cleanups, just like we did with Dunkirk. We'll go downtown and clean. But in the wintertime, we're also gonna add one. And some of y'all looking nervous already. Yo, this is a good thing. Okay. It will involve snow shoveling. I'm just telling you now, <laughs> if it snows. But I just believe we can do more. And not so that one day they walk into our church. Like if they do, that's awesome. But the heart of doing outreach is to demonstrate versus just talk to. Robert E. Coleman in his book on evangelism said this, people are looking for a demonstration, not an explanation. So people aren't looking for you to tell them they're a sinner. They're not looking for you to pick apart their theology. They're not looking for you to tell them that the world is you know, going down. They're looking for you to demonstrate what you actually believe. They're looking for you to be slow to speak and quick to listen. They're looking for you to, to speak the truth in love. Not just truth, but in love. That's a demonstration. Why do we do this? Because that's what Jesus did. Mark chapter 10 is my final scripture and Jesus says something that gives us the epitome of his whole ministry. As he's talking to potential followers and his own disciples, he says, and Jesus called them to him and said, you know that those that are considered uh, Gentiles, the ones that are considered lords, they rule over them with their lordship. So, so what Jesus is saying here, let me break it down real quick. He's saying there's people in life that they ride on their titles and positions. They have authority, but they use that over people. Okay, the Romans, they use their centurion status to manipulate and mistreat people. And Jesus says in verse 43, he says, but it shall not be so among you. My people aren't gonna use their titles and positions to manipulate people. Here's what he says. Whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be a slave of all. Meaning, I want to see great things in my life. I have to have the heart and posture of a servant, okay? The kingdom of God, the only posture is servanthood. The only posture is that of one that says, I'm here for others, not myself. The only one that works is the one that says, my life is not my own. Everything I have, he has given to me. And why? Because Jesus was a servant. Verse 44, whoever wants to be first among you must be slave of all. But even the son of man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Last week, we had you know, 18 people in our kids meeting. We added new volunteers to our kids team. But I still realize that there is a burning in some of us for what's next. I gotta tell you, don't go another year without serving. That doesn't have to be here in this church, but somewhere, some part of your life where you are giving to others what you are expecting to be given to you. This church is gonna be known for serving people. We want them here but we're gonna go out and get them and love them and serve them. Okay, you haven't seen nothing yet, my friends. Not what gospel's gonna do, what God's gonna do.